Well, welcome to another episode of the Crazy Sheep Podcast. I'm your host, Big Tom Perkins, along with Dr. Cameron Meyerly. And I think today we're just going to continue our discussion on uh, parasites, mainly the barber pole worm. And uh, I think we kind of ended up a bit with uh, our concerns about resistance. Yeah, so last time we kind of talked about uh, just life cycle and why it's such an issue for our sheep and goat producers, you know, here in the U.S. And then again, we mentioned it's a it's a global problem. Um, but you know, one of the the issues or the points of concern or why we deal with it to the level we deal with it today is uh, what we would call anthelmintic resistance. And an anthelmintic is just a fun way of talking about dewormers. Um, and so dewormer resistance, when we're thinking about uh, barber pole worms specifically, is kind of what's given it the issue uh, or kind of brought it up to the top of the list of just enemy number one. So, you know, just a, I have an example in a PowerPoint that I use, just a very simple kind of genetic breakdown on how dewormer resistance occurs. Um And really, it's a little bit of a history lesson. If we go back and think about just veterinary advice, um, you know, early 2000s, late 1900s, you know, it was kind of common practice to prescribe dewormers on a flock-wide use uh, at regular intervals. So, um, and certainly you can't fault them on kind of that thought process. if we're eliminating that parasite population every four weeks, then we really don't have the uh, the negative effects of that parasite because the thought is it, it's not there. We're killing it. Um, and so the easiest way to remove the, the um, symptoms is to remove the problem. Uh, and so that was kind of the goal in, in thinking. Uh, the issue is, and again, pull this example out of how many times have you given a dose of dewormer or just drenched a sheep with anything and, uh, you know, they spit it back out or um, they're fighting you on it. And maybe it's user error where, you know, you shoot it out the other side of their mouth and hopefully we catch those. Then um, the other question is how many of us are, are running those sheep across the scale to get an accurate weight? to know what dose to provide that treatment at. Um, And so all of those, you know, labor intensive things are just human error portions are are kind of what have contributed to the issue we see today. So underdosing, um, just widespread use of, of those classes. It's the same kind of conversation we have with antibiotics in, in human medicine, Um, you know, and why, why we have these what we'd call super bugs um, running around and and causing problems. So it's kind of where we're at with our with our barber pole worm. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've seen uh, oh a few Facebook posts where they have just recently wormed uh, some ewes, and then these ewes were acting really funny. And then uh, after answering a few questions from other people. It pretty much came down to the idea that they overwormed those. And uh, mm-hmm. I know on some of those wormers, uh, it can be near fatal if you give them too much of it. 
Yeah, so definitely our levamisole products yeah. uh, can have some neurologic symptoms. Uh, I don't remember the exact percentage over body weight that that becomes an issue, but you need to be pretty accurate with those uh, with those dosage requirements on on those lambs, especially, and and even on our ewes. Um, and I would even say, like, have seen some things where, you know, well, we've wormed everybody and we've got these symptoms, and it's like, well, do you know that your dewormer actually worked? And I guess I, to finalize that first thought is we're kind of left now with parasite populations that if we go out with a single class of dewormer um, and treat an infected animal or treat the flock, we can leave a significant portion of those resistant worms behind. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, if I go to treat one that's, that's very ill, that needs treatment for survival um, and it doesn't work, then yeah, I'm just might as well shoot it on the ground because um, the dewormer that is uh, because it's not going to do anything in that animal. So I, it's not a good thing, um, but I do think it has allowed a lot of individuals in the sheep industry uh, or forced them to pivot in kind of how we th we think about treatment. Um, again, it, it's not a positive, but I think the end result could be beneficial for our, our producers um, in maybe the way that, you know, we graze sheep, um, maybe the way that we treat individuals. Are we, we're more responsible with that medication um, is my hope. And then also seeking, you know, genetic tools to create more sustainable uh, approaches to parasite infections. So, uh, or the lack of a parasite infection. So, Again, it's kind of forced our hand in a lot of ways, uh, but if we kind of look at it glass half full, I think it, it can be beneficial. Um, unfortunately, there's not a silver bullet ap approach to like, well, we don't have dewormers now, like now we have this and that doesn't, that doesn't exist. Um, so we've got to be pretty creative. Yeah, so it's, it's my understanding I, uh, I guess that uh, the worms that are resistant, that that term is called refugia. And I only bring that up because I had heard that term several times and didn't understand what they were talking about. So Yes, so refugia is, is actually just referring to the worms that are in the environment. And so instead of it being the resistant worms in the environment, they can be a part of that refugia. Um, our goal is to have uh, this whole thought of having refugia is this, it's the population in the environment. And I want that population to be susceptible to my right. dewormers. So my goal through selective deworming, so through our FAMACHA program, um, only deworming ones, sheep that are heavily infected and have um, symptoms of anemia specific to barbapole, uh, the goal is to deworm the ones that are heavily infected, the ones that, that are dealing with their infection, they're still spreading eggs, reproducing, um, the worms inside of those infected animals, but they're not seeing the, the negative symptoms. So we're putting out a parasite population with the goal that, that we are kind of overpopulating, uh, 
and, and not overpopulating, but the percentage of the worm population in the environment, that refugia, is susceptible to our dewormer. Mm-hmm. So that when an, in, when an animal is infected, when we treat it, we can actually see an improvement in that health uh, category. So, yeah, refugia is just the population, and we want it to be more susceptible than uh, resistant. See, then I had that definition all wrong. So can you can you talk a little bit about the three classes of wormer that are available? Because my understanding, if you're using one class and, uh, oh, I don't know, just say the name brand would be Cydactin. Um, right. That's, and that's, is that the white one or is that the clear one? can never remember but anyhow if you're using something like cydactin and uh you're finding it's no longer uh, effective and you go to another wormer that's in that same class your uh efficacy of that wormer is not going to be very good because because they build up a resistance basically to that class not necessarily just that specific wormer yeah, before you even get into the like the dewormer question, it's uh, or what class. I, the biggest question I would ask is, do you have a problem in the first place? So assuming we've already implemented some rotational grazing, assuming we've already implemented uh, selective deworming principles, which, again, those those two things alone, I think, are very simple and you can gain a lot of uh gain a lot of ground back in the the fight against our our resistant worms um you know before you even get into like well do we need to switch it up what what rotation do we need uh, is kind of evaluating a baseline of efficacy and you know you threw that term out and that's when we're thinking about efficacy it's the percentage of the population that we're removing through treatment so uh, if we have an animal that has 5,000, a, a fecal egg count of 5,000 uh, eggs per gram, and then we uh, treat that animal because it has a FOMACHA score of a four, we treat that animal, we wait, and then we measure that fecal egg count again um, and say we're, we're at zero, then we would calculate that as 100% efficacy meaning we were able to clear out from that those two data points we can state that we've cleared out we're assuming we've cleared out um the entire population mm-hmm. so i don't i don't have my calculator in front of me but say we we go back and um we still have a thousand eggs per gram um and so that would be a thousand would be one fifth of that five thousand egg per gram mm-hmm. so we'd be at a eighty percent We've yeah. taken 80% of the population out of um, efficacy, which is below the rate in which we'd like to see it. So uh, for it to be what we'd consider effective. That 20% that's left could potentially be resistant now to that. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yep. And so the number that we're looking for is above 95%, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, and so like, that it sounds high, but do you want it to be 
any less. Like the only reason I'm treating is because this animal has a problem Mm -hmm. um, and I need it to work and I'm spending money on a product that I'd like to work. So kind of figuring out like what, what have you used on your farm? If you're seeing consistent issues and maybe you're not, but just to get a baseline of, um, you know, maybe we're using Cydactin and we've got an animal that um, has a, a FAMACHA score in that four range and, Maybe we can pull some fecal samples on those individuals that we know we're going to treat. We pull that fecal sample beforehand, treat them, pull a fecal sample, you know, days after treatment, and um, and then look at what our fecal count reduction um, looks like and, and trying to evaluate that efficacy. And you had mentioned kind of we were talking um, some places that will that'll even take a culture of your uh, kind of parasite population. And so you'd send fecals in, they culture those. Again, we'd mention grow them in an incubator for seven days, or um, I can put it in a cup on the countertop. As long as I keep it moist, mm-hmm. um, I can grow larvae inside in, in 14 days pretty, pretty easily. Um, so they'll take that, they'll culture that larvae out and then expose larvae to um, those classes of dewormer and give you a profile of of what's effective and and kind of where your resistant lies in your worm population. And so you had mentioned you had done something similar to that. Yeah, we, uh, you know, we had sent ours off to uh, Virginia Tech and that was through a grant from uh, the University of Rhode Island. Um, I believe you can go on their website and find that information. But uh, but let's back up just a second and let's go through the exact protocol that you could do to, to see how what the efficiency is or efficacy, I guess, of your dewormer. So you're going to take an animal that you know has got uh, a pretty poor FAMACHA score and you're going to pull a fecal egg count, or you're going to pull a, a fecal sample, which is yeah. which is pretty simple to do. You just the way we do it is we use a rubber glove. <clears throat> we go into that uh, that rectum with uh, two fingers and pull out about two fingers worth of uh, pellets. I think they want to have two grams. I think is what they ask for. And you you pull that yeah, minimum of two grams there. Yeah, you pull that. You turn that glove inside out with the with the manure on the inside and you can label that we label it with the sheet number or the ear tag number of that you and then you're going to dose that animal then you're going to wait how many days till you take the next fecal two days three days yeah a lot of that is dependent on on class of dewormer yeah minimum Uh, i'd even say like five to seven so kind of our protocol with um if if we're deworming anything, it's, um, and I say if, and, and we can talk about genetics here in a minute. Um, I, I don't, I don't brag. There's a lot of people that'll tell you, um, like, well, we haven't, we haven't dewormed sheep here in 20 years. Well, they also don't tell you how big the compost pile is out back. Um, and certainly like you, you can get away with, um, not deworming, you may have increased death loss and, and those two things come like they, they coincide. So um, 
unless you're taking the approach of of genetic technologies and implementing some fecal egg count EBVs where uh, we know we can put some some immune function into those animals, uh, improved immune function into those animals towards parasitism. Um, and then, you know, if you want to talk about how you're not deworming sheep, um, we can start to have that conversation. So again, on the ewe side of things, um, we're not dealing with with barber pole worm as a as a serious contender on our our parasite uh, list, we probably will lose some use to meningeal worm, um, and it's like the month of September. Uh, you're just watching, and there it's almost every year. There's an indicator sheet, meaning one that you spot, and um, we're trying to get better about grazing, kind of around that 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 time of year. Um, staying away from our wet areas but you know that's in i guess where i was starting with that um if we have something to deworm we're pulling it off of the pasture and i'm treating it and then i'm going to measure its fecal egg count afterward to make sure that my dewormer is working because if i just deworm her and kick her back out if I know it's barber pole, I've monitored her. She's a score four or five, and um, I kick her back out, and my dewormer wasn't effective. Now all I've done is is added that resistant strain of worm to that refugia, as we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like to keep them in the barn, and it's uh, again, it's not the flock. Yeah. So um, I've got that that one or two that are at a four or five, and this is for example sake, um, I'll pull them off and then five to seven days later, pull another fecal and then look look at efficacy um, on those. You can, you can pull that second fecal and you can send that off to like Virginia Tech. Correct, yeah. Yep, and you can get those results back and that can tell you how well your, your specific dewormer is working. Correct. And was the the um, culture that you sent off to URI, was that a, like, multi-class test? No. So what we did was, okay. I'm not sure what you mean by multi-class. So, uh, so I know, I, I believe it's um, Kaplan down at University of Georgia. Um, and I don't know if he, he's still doing those. Um it, at one point in time, you could send off your uh, your fecal collection, um, and that was tended to be a flock wide kind of pooled sample. They'd culture it, and then they would expose those parasite, the infective larvae, to um, like they put them in wells with uh, cytactin prohibit valbazin, and they would look at like kill percentage in each okay class of dewormer um and then you'd have a whole profile of well prohibits effective on your on your farm but valbazin is useless or um safeguard is working but um you know ivermectin is we've got an issue so um 
No, we we no, that yeah, wasn't I, at all what we did. All we okay. did was okay. just trying to measure ahead of time uh, the parasite load in each individual lamb. So we were we grazed the spot um, and purposely overgrazed that spot, left them there a couple of days along with the uh, mature ewes, and then came back to that spot in 30 days, figuring the parasite load should be pretty heavy, and just grazed those lambs there. So basically we were infecting them on purpose and then kept an eye on them as soon as we started to see signs of parasitism, either through bottle jaw, which was a little late, or the uh, monster scores. And then we would pull fecal samples on every one of those lambs, send that information or send that, that send those fecals into Virginia Tech. Then they would send us back a report and tell us who was uh, horribly infected and who wasn't. And then we enter that information into the NSIP uh, program or through NSIP. And then that would come back and give us per individual animal how parasite resistant they actually are. Because that, that is something in our breeding program we're working towards is we want the most yeah. parasite resistance in those animals that we possibly can get. And part of the way we do that is by retaining ewes that are highly parasite resistant in the flock and bringing in rams that are highly parasite resistant to breed to those ewes, to produce yeah. lambs that are highly parasite resistant. Yeah, and that's one of those situations. And we've kind of talked with the way that, that you're grazing. So, um, for us, those Fomacha scores and dewormer treatments um, in heavy infections are are big culling points, mm -hmm. meaning um, and, and kind of, you know, for individuals that maybe aren't selecting sheep for parasite resistance and they're just but they're keeping records of the individuals that they're um, that they're treating. Yep. You know, I challenge them to to go back and look at um you know, the list of, of treatment records and are there sheep on that list for dewormer administration um, that are, that are showing up multiple times. Mm -hmm. And if they are, you know, even if you've been keeping records for a long time, keep going down the line. Like, does that, you have daughters in the flock yeah. and are those showing up on that list? Yeah. Um, and so not, not everybody has, uh, an extensive list like that. Uh, but the individuals you talk to that are like, you know, I, I've got this issue and it's, it's really frustrating. And then they start to look, you kind of talk them off the ledge and they start to look at the list of, uh, or if they're not keeping a list, you tell them, okay, you gotta start writing down who you're treating. And all of a sudden they see that, oh, it's the same, like 20 sheep out of my flock of a hundred. Mm -hmm. They're having problems, yep. but they didn't know it until they just took the time to write it down Yeah, um, because it feels like you're just treating everybody all the time. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, that's kind of the story that I've been told. Um, and so from that, it, it's just frustrating. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, they call those 20 U's and then they've got one or two a year yeah. and it's a, it's a freak thing. So, um, you know, those are again, simple, simple things to move into that, um, 
don't necessarily take a lot of time and and can really produce a lot of result. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, record keeping is is paramount. I don't know how you raise sheep without keeping records. I really don't. I know there's lots of people that do. Uh, geez, even back when I had cattle, I I kept records because I couldn't remember what I did. You know, right? You think you can, but I, I've I've yeah. never been able to. I've always been amazed when I walk on somebody's farm and they'll point an animal out and they'll tell me the entire life history and they go back five or six generations. And I think, man, I can't remember any of that stuff. Right. I have it written down. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's written down now with NSIP, uh, you know, that information is, you know, super easy to pull up and yeah. I can go back through that. And on these rainy days when I don't know what to do, I'll spend a lot of time just looking back through that stuff. And uh, looking at, I'm always looking ahead as to who I'm going to be calling, <laughs> you know? Right, right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and that's, so I guess where my question was headed, um, you know, the way that you're grazing, so you're moving sheep every day. They don't have an opportunity to um, become reinfected by the infective larvae that they are producing in that generation. Meaning if I've got sheep on a pasture for, um say 10 days we're hot and humid uh and i've got my ewes out there they're depositing uh eggs in the environment those eggs are developing to an effective large uh infective stage three larvae of hamacus contortus and then we pick up those ewes pick up that infective stage and now they've got additional worms yep. in their in their system, um, so you don't deal with that issue because it's it's seven paddocks behind you. By the time that that larvae is infective and ready to ready to go, not that uh, those larvae can't harbor over until you come back to it again, but you have some extended periods. So my question is, do you feel that maybe some of those use in and there will be a second part. Some of those ewes can maybe hide in the flock and get by with uh, not having the best parasite resistance and still thrive in your system because of that management. Oh, absolutely. There are ewes that I can go through and, you know, especially when I go back through NSIP records that have just horrible parasite resistance. Um I would think if you were grazing them in a continuously grazed system, they'd be dead in a month or so. <laughs> they just have, they have no resistance at all. But because of the way we graze, we're just minimizing the risk. We're minimizing that intake of, of parasites. And I'm sure they probably have a parasite load, but it's it's very low. And we're able to keep it very low with that. And we know that uh, the longer that L3 larva is in the pasture, is just another day closer it is to dying. And right. if you can make your rest periods as long as possible, you're you're kind of waiting them out. Kind of a kind of a deal. Not to mention, it's just fantastic for your grass and your root system and and all that. Um, so it kind of all goes hand in hand. So we strive for 90 to 100 days. That doesn't always happen for our rest period. And um, 
but the, the big thing is we know that parasite's going to be in somewhere in that four inch and below range. And so if we're going into grass that's eight, 10, 12 inches tall, um, most of those sheep are not going to graze down into that range. If you leave them there long enough, they certainly will. But we just really want them in there, taking the tops off, tramping everything else down. And then, you know, tomorrow we're moving on to the next spot. It, uh, right. And, and, and so been, I guess the second. That has been a huge, a huge game changer for us. So the second part, you know, you're talking about intentionally, um, I guess, mismanaging some ewe okay. lambs. Yep. In what would be mismanagement in your system to get them infected, mm -hmm. to try to evaluate their immune function towards a parasite infection. Yep. Um, I, do you feel that that's absolutely crucial, kind of a trial by fire to see who who possesses the ability to thrive in an environment that is that hopefully they're never going to see again on your farm? Um but if they do, you're going to be you're going to be OK, uh, as well as if they go to somebody else's farm and. And try to perform there that they're set up to. to yeah, succeed. I, I think that that the, the second part is the most important. Um, you know, I, I, I can I can graze sheep and, and not have a problem with with parasites. But when I'm selling breeding stock, I'm not always sure where those are going to end up and what their grazing system is. And so I feel like I need to intentionally affect them so that I can get that data. I can understand that information. And when someone comes in and they're looking for breeding rams or they're looking for uh, some replacement ewe lambs, um, you know, we can kind of pair them up. And when we tell them that they're parasite resistant, we know that they're parasite resistant because we have infected them. And we've been able to measure that and see what the resistance levels are. Um, I think there's always going to be room for improvement. And I think it's something you have to continuously look at. But yeah, I, uh, you know, when a guy tells me, yeah, I've had sheep for 20 years and I've never wormed them, that doesn't tell me anything. That doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't mean they're parasite resistant. They could be grazing the same way I'm grazing. And you, if you're grazing that way, it's a good chance you're not going to have a problem. But, uh, and it just is kind of the same thing as when I was going past an Amishman's farm and they're just continuously grazing and I'm looking out across there and there isn't a blade of grass that's any taller than a quarter inch or a half inch. And I kind of wonder, well, maybe they don't have any <laughs> parasite issues because the worms can't live in that environment. Maybe the, the sunlight's just drying right. out as soon as they hatch kind of a thing. But, uh, yeah. But you can't tell me that you that your sheep are parasite resistant if you don't take the measurements. It's it's yeah. apples and oranges. It truly is. And we'll just, you know, we'll continue to do that. Right. And that being said, do you, I, I don't know that you have to be involved in NSIP to, uh, you know, I think you can be a commercial producer. Maybe you're buying NSIP rams or maybe you're buying industry rams. Um, and I think you can have sheep that are parasite resistance or have parasite resistance, um, but you'd have to measure it, you know, and it's a continuous, it would be a continuous 
measurement. And it's a lot, you're still collecting the data. So, um, and that was kind of where we were at. We didn't necessarily start with the most parasite resistant ram in the breed. Uh, when we first got the Katahdins, he did a lot of other things really, really well. Um, but kind of moving forward, you know, we were looking at just being a commercial producer. Um, I knew I wanted NSIP Rams on the top side that had value. And it was to, to push in some parasite resistant genetics mm-hmm. so that it would kind of allow some flexibility in our, our grazing system, what you would call uh, rotationally overgrazing yeah. for, for a lot, for a lot of the application. Um, it, it's still not to sound, you know, harsh, but uh, we put those sheep in a lot of environments where I need them to work for me, like in terms of brush control, yep. um, in terms of like weed management or uh, forage suppression for a, a subsequent planting. Yep. And so there are times I, I knew going into it, there would be times that they would see parasites in the environment from they would be in a paddock for longer than seven days. Yep. Um, and I wanted to have that, I guess, quote unquote, insurance policy mm-hmm. on the in that genetic makeup um, to to really allow for some of those um, inconveniences in in their life cycle, uh, but to really make them work in multifaceted approaches on the on the farm. So um, it's worked out well for us. And it's something that's uh, there's always more to learn about it. And there's always uh, new stuff. I don't care if you've done it for, um, you know, 20 years, you hear something, something new and cutting edge. It's like, oh, wow, that's we need to pursue that. So um yeah, it's been it's been fun talking about this topic as a whole. And I think just for the sake of time on the genetics to get into the hardcore genetic, um, the immunology, maybe portion of it, we'll save that for a, for a later date. Yeah, we'll definitely have to because we're running up on our time here, Cam. My famous saying. And uh, so we also want to let people know that uh, we're we are receiving a few questions here and there. And so keep those questions coming because we plan on doing an episode, uh, I guess for listener questions, and we're going to try to answer some of those. So if you'd like to reach out to us, uh, you can do that by contacting me at big Tom Perkins at gmail.com. And we'd like to thank you for listening to another episode of the grazing sheep podcast. Be sure to get on whatever platform you're on there and make sure you hit follow. And, uh, we like to build that list up if we can. And that'll give you notifications when a new episode comes out. So it's been good catching up to you, Cam. And uh, you too, Tom. So we'll continue this discussion on in the next episode, I believe. So, all right, buddy, take care. You too. All right, bye.